Welcome to AEM Early Access, a podcast of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. In June of 2022, the United States Supreme Court decision Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization overturned Roe versus Wade removing almost 50 years of precedent and enabling the imposition of a wide range of state-level restrictions on abortion access. So today we are discussing the impact of this ruling on emergency medicine with a new AEM paper called Post-Row Emergency Medicine, Policy, Clinical, Training, and Individual Implications for Emergency Clinicians. Lead author Dr. Margaret Samuels-Kalo is here to discuss it with us. Dr. Samuels Kalo is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician in both emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Her work focuses on developing interventions to reduce disparities in emergency care and designing strategies to use the ED visit to address adverse social determinants of health. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the publisher for a limited time. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Samuels Kalo. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So today we are looking at your paper, which describes, among other things, the wide-ranging potential impacts of the reversal of Roe versus Wade on emergency care. So I'll quote your paper. This paper aims to describe the impact of the reversal of Roe versus Wade on health equity and reproductive justice the provision of emergency care, emergency medicine education and training, and the specific legal and reproductive consequences for emergency clinicians. It concludes with policy and advocacy recommendations for emergency clinicians to advocate for safe, timely, and unrestricted access to comprehensive health care, which includes abortion. So that is a lot. Um, and so we're going to try to break it down in the podcast, but I do urge everyone to read the full text of this paper. Um, so Maggie, let's start with this. Can you describe the ways in which the emergency department has historically been an important access point for reproductive health care in the United States? Sure. And I think as you think about your daily shift in the ED, you can see the reproductive health care that you're providing. We know that more than 900,000 ED visits each year are for early pregnancy loss, and that doesn't even include those who are presenting for ectopic pregnancy or other pregnancy complications. ED diagnoses of ectopic pregnancies have also been increasing, rising from 7 to 8.3 per 10,000 pregnancies between 2006 and 2010. We also know that patients can present to the emergency department following a medication or procedural abortion. And so what changed was on June 24th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court ruled on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization and overturned Roe versus Wade. So that removes almost 50 years of precedent and allowed individual states to determine restrictions on abortion. And I want to be clear that the state level policy landscape is really fluid and rapidly changing, but our best estimates are about 26 states, which is half of the United States, are likely to ban access to abortion if their trigger laws have not already done so. And this has critical implications for pregnant patients, for those with reproductive potential, and the clinicians who care for them, which is those of us who work in the ED. Okay, so 
First, your paper addresses the Dobbs decision's impact on health equity and reproductive justice, obviously a huge topic. What do you want readers uh, and listeners to know about reproductive autonomy and justice in the setting of the Roe versus Wade reversal? So I'm going to start just really quickly with a definition, which is that reproductive autonomy is defined as an individual's ability to be a fully empowered agent in their own reproductive needs and decisions and to access reproductive health services without interference or coercion. Reproductive justice, on the other hand, addresses the intersectional nature of race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, and the unequal access to reproductive health care that's mediated through socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. politics, geography, and culture. Mm -hmm. This is an enormous topic, and we can't do it justice within the paper or the timing of the podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> but ultimately, we know that the reversal of Roe versus Wade directly limits reproductive autonomy and will exacerbate pre-existing racial inequities in maternal and neonatal outcomes. We've seen that racism is a driver of reproductive injustice, and as a result, Black, Hispanic, Indigenous people, and particularly those of low socioeconomic status and living in rural areas, continue to experience disproportionate barriers to accessing reproductive health care. One example is that we know that maternal morbidity and mortality in the U.S. is highest among women of color. There were recent legislative bans on abortion in Texas, as you know, and it required state-mandated expected management of obstetrical complications. And published reports from obstetricians in Texas have shown increased maternal morbidity following those bans. Another study estimated that pregnancy-related mortality will increase by 21% overall under an abortion ban, wow. but because of racial disparities, it will increase by 13% among those who are white and 33% among those who are non-Hispanic Black. We see in addition to mortality impacts, socioeconomic impacts of giving birth that are significant and forced birth and pregnancy will magnify pre-existing disparities. Hmm. Not only are low-income women more likely to have difficulty accessing abortion care, but those who do not terminate undesired pregnancies are more likely to experience adverse economic consequences. We have limited data on this, but one 2018 study showed that women who were not able to get abortions had higher odds of poverty, were less likely to have full-time work, and more likely to require some form of public assistance. It's also really important to note that beyond race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status, restrictive abortion laws also exacerbate additional disparities in reproductive health among transgender and non-binary folks and among those with disabilities who already experience barriers to accessing timely reproductive health care. Okay. All right. So let's move on to the anticipated impact of the reversal on the provision of emergency care. So um, can you describe some of the scenarios where our ability to provide timely reproductive health care uh, is or will be impaired um, or what we might encounter more frequently in the future? So let's start with um, early detection and treatment of pregnancy complications. Sure. And it's, it's important to note as we have this conversation that equitable access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care never truly existed, right? Because mm. each state had different restrictions on patients' healthcare decision-making and access. And even between 1973 and 2021, before the Dobbs decision, there were over 1,300 abortion restrictions enacted within the United States. Mm -hmm. But as emergency physicians, we know that early detection and treatment of pregnancy complications are critical, right? We spend a lot of time trying to find 
the patient with first trimester vaginal bleeding who has an ectopic pregnancy and getting them quickly to treatment, mm -hmm. whether it's medical treatment with methotrexate or procedural treatment with our OBGYN colleagues. And if you are facing uncertainty about whether you're allowed to treat that complication, whether it rises to a standard in your state that meets an appropriately life-saving or medical emergency standard, mm. there is a lot of ambiguity in how those laws will be adjudicated and a lot of clinician fear about legal ramifications for managing ectopic pregnancies that raises concerns about people not being able to access care that they need or care being delivered more slowly because of barriers awaiting legal approval for necessary medical treatment. Okay. How about um, what we might see in terms of abortions now without clinical supervision? I think that's a really important point because as safe and legal abortions are becoming harder to access, the frequency with which pregnant patients may pursue abortions without clinical supervision are likely to rise. And often that's exceedingly safe, but we will see a higher rate of complications as more of those procedures happen without clinical supervision. And emergency physicians need to learn how to identify and safely manage those complications and do so without violating patient confidentiality in jurisdictions where they may suffer legal consequences. Well, that actually leads into my next question, which is about patients avoiding getting timely care or withholding important history because they're afraid of those legal repercussions. I agree that this is a really terrifying potential consequence and one that I think we're likely to hear more about. There have certainly been news reports of cases of patients being criminally investigated or arrested for self-management of abortion and a recent high-profile case involving a patient that presented to an emergency department. I think it's important to make sure everyone is clear that despite these changes in restrictive abortion laws, determining if a pregnant person used abortion medication or violated the law is not the job of the ED clinician. At the time, at least that we were putting this paper together, no state mandated reporting of patients who may have had an illegal abortion. Mm. But if those state's laws did go into effect, they would create a significant challenge for emergency clinicians. Mm -hmm. And there is an ASAP code of ethics to help guide us here. And I'm gonna quote from it directly because I think it's really important. Personal information should only be disclosed when such disclosure is necessary to carry out a stronger conflicting duty, such as a duty to protect an identifiable third party from serious harm or comply with a just law. And in this case, we argue that you should consider these patients similar to those who are undocumented or who use illicit drugs, mm -hmm. where we would provide um, excellent medical care, as well as a verbal description of the fact that the medical system is separate from the legal system and careful attention to what is truly required for documentation in the chart for their ongoing medical care to not put them in legal jeopardy. The Society for Family Planning, for example, suggests writing down that the patient believes she was pregnant and is now bleeding without specifying any additional details. Okay. So you also note that there will likely be an impact on emergency medicine education and training. So tell us, tell us a little more about that. So we've tried to think through within each of the ACGME core competencies, how education and training might be impacted. And in the paper, we provide examples across all of them. And I'll touch briefly on a couple that I think are really important. Um, the first is around patient care, thinking about 
how do you obtain the essential components of a history of a patient with vaginal bleeding um, with this careful attention to confidentiality, making sure you have only the information that's medically necessary documented in the chart, and thinking about whether or not there are areas where patients are going to need emergency physicians to have additional clinical training, for example, in medication abortion or in management of post-abortion complications. So there's going to be additional clinical skills and then also medical knowledge that we need in terms of the indications and contraindications to different medication abortion um, regimens and increasing familiarity with managing uterine hemorrhage and infection. And then as we think about, I think there's going to be a lot of implications also for systems-based practice, thinking about how to understand your local protocols for coordinating care, transferring patients across state lines becomes more complicated when there are different rules in different states, and then strengthening our collaborative relationships with colleagues from OBGYN to make sure that we're providing safe and appropriate referrals and follow-up care. So we touched on this before, but um, what what are the potential legal implications for emergency physicians who care for these patients? Like what potential legal jeopardy might they face? So I would say that this is really, at this point, unlitigated um, and highly concerning. We know that mm-hmm. clinicians that violate state laws can be subject to criminal penalties, um, including imprisonment, and that's definitely undermining the ability to provide safe and essential evidence-based care as people are afraid and concerned appropriately about those potential consequences. And we also have a lot of potential scenarios in emergency care that could result in legal risk for clinicians that are part of our routine practice, providing emergency contraception, which we do to survivors of sexual assault, um, as well as other patients who present to the ED, care for ectopic pregnancies, as I mentioned, and emergency stabilization of hemorrhage during a miscarriage um, are just three standard examples. Several states have attempted to pass legislation that would ban treatment for ectopic pregnancy, including Missouri and Texas. And these changes would place emergency clinicians in a really difficult position of facing criminal charges for providing life-saving care. At the moment, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has released a memorandum reinforcing EMTALA's obligations for pregnancy and pregnancy loss, protecting emergency physicians, providing life-saving and emergency care to patients undergoing pregnancy complications. However, there's a lot of legal challenges underway to this memorandum and a lot of state-specific variations. So what we really recommend in the paper is for ED clinicians to be really, to be very attentive to their local environment and also to think about opportunities to advocate to improve their state policy environment, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, interestingly, you also note the potential impacts on emergency physicians themselves on on personal levels, on their own reproductive health. Yes, we know that the biggest threat associated with these changes undoubtedly is to our patients. But we felt like we'd be really remiss not to consider how these changes impacted the clinicians personally. And this impacts both individuals who can become pregnant, um, particularly those who may miss important educational or career opportunities due to inability to travel for conferences or meetings that are held in states with restrictive access to reproductive care while pregnant or attempting to become pregnant. But it also impacts individuals who cannot become pregnant due to the unknown impact of legislative changes on ART and in vitro fertilization, 
transfer, it threatens the diversity of families in emergency medicine who have used or may want to use reproductive technology. These legislative changes threaten future embryos and existing embryos in terms of limitations of the number of eggs that can be fertilized, pre-implantation genetic testing, freezing, and discarding of embryos with genetic abnormalities. Trigger laws can change the rules around how IVF transfers are uh, happen in terms of the number of embryos that can be transferred, increasing the risk of multifetal pregnancy and the health risks of the pregnant individual. And so ultimately, I think the extent to which EM clinicians will be personally affected by the overturning of Roe versus Wade generates a lot of questions at this point, but there are a number of ethical and legal implications that we need to consider as we anticipate how these restrictions affect both our practice and our lives. What, what advocacy actions might concerned physicians consider? You get into this in your paper, and I think um, many of us are interested. I'm really glad you asked, because I think this can be, this is a really weighty topic, and there's a lot of, of bad news in this piece, and it's important to, to leave feeling like there's, there's work for us to do here that is important and valuable. And so we tried to break it down in the paper into sort of four levels, thinking about kind of policy level advocacy, institutional organizational advocacy, educational advocacy, and individual advocacy. And I hope that all the people listening to this or reading the paper can find something in this list that they can engage with um, to help move this forward, because it's going to need a concerted effort from all of us to make change in this space. So from a policy perspective, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of advocating for legal protections for emergency clinicians providing evidence-based reproductive care. Um, there's going to be a new initiative through the ACLU to help provide high-level representation for physicians in states um, who are providing reproductive health care and may end up in legal jeopardy. We also have the opportunity to champion the expansion of telehealth and remote prescribing to increase access to comprehensive reproductive care. And then as physicians who function under EMTALA all the time, we can really support the use of EMTALA to preempt state restrictions on abortion, and then more broadly advocate for improved access to equitable reproductive care, including birth control, prenatal care, as well as abortion. From an institutional and organizational perspective within your healthcare system or your hospital, critically important to make sure that you're advocating for employer support for pregnant clinicians to travel for necessary medical care, particularly if you're located in a state where um, abortion restrictions have been enacted. Employers need to provide information about state-specific regulations and protections for emergency physicians. And then I think it's also important for EM national associations to pay attention to the location of conferences and meetings and consider accessibility strategies for those who are unable to travel to states that are restricting reproductive care. From an educational standpoint, we need to advocate for additional training and options counseling, abortion provision, and management of unsafe abortion complications. And this is really an opportunity where residents, trainees, and faculty can take the lead, as well as making sure that we're training people about their specific state rules, as well as local and national resources. From an individual standpoint, making sure that we have access to detailed information about the state and hospital legal environment and legal protection, and information about options for, producing, for pursuing assisted reproductive technology in pregnancy care. So just to sum up, what would you like us to take away from this paper? I think there are really four main things that I hope people take away from this paper. The first is to understand the equity implications of these changes. 
The second is to recognize the legal jeopardy for EM physicians, the current protections of the EMTALA rules and the rapidly changing landscape. The third is to know how to protect your patients as best we can at this moment with particular attention to confidentiality and documentation. And the fourth is to find opportunities to advocate for change and improvement on whatever scale that you can. The implications of this ruling stripping away reproductive rights are gonna be felt for years to come. And we try in the paper to summarize the potential implications on health equity and reproductive justice, on emergency care, education, training, and the legal and reproductive consequences. But we know that there are gonna be additional and evolving consequences that we can't even imagine. And it's critical that we advocate for both abortion access and reproductive justice to minimize the harm to our patients and reduce unnecessary barriers to accessing safe and evidence-based care. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Samuels Kayla, for coming to talk to us about this important paper. Um, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.